0: Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, come and have your way with us. Speak the words that you want to speak. Put the things in our heart that you want there. And overcome our impediments, overcome our weakness, and overcome our heart of hearing. Overcome our blindness. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you. Well, for those that have been paying attention, we're still in the Gospels uh, this morning, we'll be. We have hopscotched over Mark 11 uh, wholesale, how about that? And a lot has transpired since we last checked in with our Gospel travelogue. Prior to this, backstory for Mark 11, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, so the triumphal entry has occurred. He's had several heated exchanges with the Jewish leaders. He's cleansed the temple, you remember that story and his purpose and his identity have become all the more clear, and that's just, that's just Mark 11. Those are just the highlights. In our chapter, Mark 12, let me give you some backstory there. Jesus is debating the religious order of his day, and they're debating things like taxes, money, stewardship, resurrection, marriage. What are the two topics you're not supposed to ever talk about? <laughs> money and religion, so they kind of just threw caution to the wind and entered into that. So. Uh, This is a no-holds-barred battle of wits, verbal theological sparring. It really is like, if you read the exchanges, it's like watching two masters compete at the top of their game, like verbal martial arts, who's going to emerge victorious. In these exchanges, they all know the word of God. They know the scripture, not just Jesus. All of them do. So this isn't a question of saving knowledge. Who knows the most or that special secret salvation, the heart of Gnosticism, it's a question of wisdom and yieldedness, I would say. If the word of God has penetrated into their lives, into their core, if God's commands have been ingested in any way, if they've been integrated into their lives to the point of transformation, i.e., has the law changed them for the better, or have they grown hard in grasping it? So in our passage, Mark 12, 28 through 34, there's a scribe called the teacher of the law who steps in the middle of the fray. And here's kind of what's cooking. He steps in the midst of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Now, this is a hornet's nest of activity, okay? You should see this as a very hostile and charged setting and hostile towards Jesus, okay? So now notice one thing. Uh, All of the ancient segments of Jewish leadership are set against Jesus here. And these, are not, these groups are not all the same, okay? They don't always, uh, they're not always simpatico with each other. The Pharisees and the Herodians, I mean, folks, they basically had nothing to do with each other politically and religiously. Sadducees, likewise, they're asking Jesus about resurrection. This is something they don't even believe in. So the point I'm trying to make here is despite their differences, they have banded together and they're trying to discredit Jesus. So specifically, uh, what are they disputing when the scribe steps in? Well, the Sadducees have cooked up a fairly elaborate scenario about resurrection, about marriage, about remarriage, and they're trying to stump Jesus. And it reads like a riddle. And Jesus, I'm not going to summarize all that, but Jesus rebukes them uh, in verse 24, and he says, is this not the reason you're wrong? (laughs) Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So what he's trying to say is there's adventures in missing the point going on here. It's not unlike some of the theologians of the late Middle Ages, the scholastics. They sought to answer these really arcane questions like, have you ever heard this one, the how many angels can dance on the pin of a needle? Okay, that's lampooned a bit, but you get the point. What happened to the connection to the ordinary person and the real spiritual life? Now, we need to understand a little bit about the scribal culture here. They saw it as their task to parse the greater and the lesser commandments. You have to be careful there. They were to be obeyed and had authority, but which ones were weightier than others? Which ones were more important than others? And there were as many as 600-plus statutes of the law. Thus, there's this human desire to suss that out. And we can see how this devolves into a very human system of piety. It, just, it evolves into these do's and don'ts and keeping of these rules. It becomes very legalistic. We can see how this is missing the spirit of the law for the letter of the law. Which the letter of the law honestly is more about the desire for human control more than any real sense of holiness, but most of the scribal work, all this parsing and all this work, all these do's and don'ts, became separated from everyday life and ordinary people, and it often, as I said before, had a pretty strong legalistic edge, a gnostic edge, often, to how it was practiced. So this is what the scribe enters into. Is this is sort of the context and everything. So he enters the scrum, and he asks this question. Of all the commandments, what is most important? This is the famous, greatest commandment passage. We see it paralleled in Matthew 22. We also see it come up in a slightly different context in Luke 10, which will become very relevant later on. So tuck Luke 10 in your back pocket and remember that. Now, a simple question. And at least it's relevant compared to a lot of what came before it. Nothing arcane here. But this question has been answered before by other rabbis. Of all the commandments, what's the most important? Let me tell you how other rabbis have answered this. Simon the Just, a couple hundred years before Jesus, says this. Here's how he answers it The world rests on three things the law, the sacrificial worship, excuse me, and the expression of love. Okay? Hillel the elder, who Jesus grew up under, said this, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law, the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Punchy, pithy, right? Uh, Rabbi Akiba, who was a century after Jesus, regarded love of neighbor as the greatest commandment in the law. So of all the commandments, what is most important? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm curious how Jesus answers it. Very curious. So let's see. For starters, uh, and this feels very Jesus, he doesn't give only one answer. I love this. He gives two. He gives a two-part answer, pulling from two different places in the Old Testament. And I want to break this down into the two parts and talk about each of them. The first part he answers with is what we heard in the Old Testament reading. It's called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And that's the first word of it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you heard the part that followed it that Reed read about teaching it to your children, talking about it when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, tying it on your hands and binding it on your forehead. You heard all this, okay? One thing you need to know about the Shema and this passage in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, devout Jews recited this at morning and evening prayer, okay? So this practice goes way back, it's second century BC. It was to be taught to your children, similar to how we might teach the Lord's Prayer to our kids. Your lives were to be penetrated by it and imbued with God. It's a picture of the all-encompassing, holistic nature of the spiritual life. And Deuteronomy, lest we forget, is the last, I think of it as the last will and testament of Moses. And they're the necessary instructions for entering the promised land, okay? A lot of remembering, a lot of don't forget this. Uh, You heard this in Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do well in the land which you are going over to possess. So the clarion call in Deuteronomy, which the Shema falls in, obviously, is remember. Don't forget these things. Don't forget and the Shema is a distillation of the law. So the one thing you hope your kids got when they grew up in your household was summarized in the Shema. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Okay, that's Proverbs 22, six. So remember what we taught you kids. Don't forget these things. That's the Shema, okay? You'll notice it says, uh, this is a little side note. Can't help myself. Um, the Shema says that the Lord your God is one. This doesn't disprove the Trinity. It's nothing funky like that. Uh, it's saying that there's only one true God amidst all these multiple gods in the ancient Near Eastern context. So it's not anti-Trinitarian. It's a defense of monotheism. Okay? It's the Lord your God is one. He's the one true God. So the Shema, love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God with basically everything you have, with every ounce of your being, not just your mind, not just your heart, not just your will, not just your strength, but the whole person. So offer everything you have to the Lord. So that is part one of how Jesus answers it. He answers with the Shema. The second part, which will be more brief, is love the Lord your God with everything. Excuse me, love the Lord your God. Excuse me, I'm totally messing up my entire transcript. How about that? Part two, retake, click. Love your neighbors yourself. How about that? I haven't had enough coffee this morning. Uh, This is a reference to Leviticus 19, 18. And let me read that to you. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons, my emphasis, of your own people, but you shall love the neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. Let me read that again. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love the neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The conclusion in Matthew's 22 account, Jesus looks at these two and he says, there's no greater commandment than these two. The law and the prophets hang on both of these. Now, the common theme in both of these is obviously love, okay? Each part of Jesus' answer speaks of love, and I have to wonder, did the scribes catch this? In both parts, he calls us to biblical love, and what I mean is this is not some inner pondered reality. This is not a lofty physical, philosophical category. The way God defines love, it's not love until it's expressed It's not love until it's manifested. It's not love until it's put into action. So listen to all these ways that God acted out of his love on our behalf. One, God created us out of love. Okay, God rescued us out of love. Jesus left the throne room of heaven to come to our aid out of love. God sought us through the patriarchs, the law, the prophets, etc., out of love. And that is our joy and our rescue. God continues to pursue us and renew us out of his love. That's the work of sanctification, right? He sustains his creation out of love. You can look at Colossians 1 and 2 and other places for that. So that's our example. God loves us fully. So we're called to love our neighbor likewise. Now, Jesus' answers, I think, speak to the cause and effects of grace. What do I mean by that? Well, it'd be a mistake to think that this is some sort of a strict uh hierarchy where loving God is first on the list and loving my neighbor is second, like a strict sequence that we we follow. There's a relationship there, right? There's an intended progression where one leads to another. We do begin with the love of the Lord. If you'll notice in the decalogue, the Ten Commandments, first few commandments are about what? Love of love of God. Okay? And then it proceeds to speak of love of neighbor, how we treat each other. It shows us where love starts but we must still take the call to love both God and neighbor as a whole. There's an inseparability of those two commandments. You can't break them apart. If you do, you'll rupture something. Love of God can and should lead directly to love of neighbor. Israel, remember when you were slaves in Egypt. Remember when you were an enemy of me. Remember grace. Remember your rescue. Remember love and extend it to others as you have been loved by God. That's where love of neighbor comes from or should. Okay. Back to the story. The final exchange between Jesus and the scribe. This is verses 32 through 34. Well said, teacher, the scribe replies. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him. To love him with your whole heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, and Jesus commends this as wise. They agree here, okay? Now, if you hear his response, <clears throat> excuse me, is slightly patronizing, <laughs> you're probably right, and I can't help but imagine Jesus hearing his response with a bit of a smirk. Uh, that's not in the text, but that's just how I envision it. Um, and maybe this is a begrudging admission on the part of the scribe, we don't know. But he does put his finger on something that Jesus has been hammering away at, which is hypocrisy, okay? You can't fake it and go through the motions with your sacrifices and be without love. You just can't do it. The blood of goats and bulls only gets you so far, people. The echoes, I mean, this echoes the prophets like Amos and Isaiah and Hosea. They rebuke Israel. I hate your offerings, the Lord says at points. Yikes, Why? Because God's people weren't acting justly. They weren't acting righteously. There was neither love of God or love of neighbor. And Jesus says at the end of this passage, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, the thing that's interesting about this passage, one of the things I should say, it ends with an ellipse. You know what that is? A dot, dot, dot kind of ends on with this. It it has an open-endedness the way it ends. We We don't know what the scribe does. We don't know what he chooses ultimately. Will his knowledge be transformed into something greater, something salvific? We don't know. We don't know. Mark leaves us on a cliffhanger and with that question in our laps, and I think he does it on purpose. Okay. Let's dig a little deeper into Jesus' answer here, and then we'll wrap up from there. And ushers, this would be a great time to go ahead and let the kids know that they can uh, begin to kind of file up here, and maybe we could kind of hold them on that side of the door until we're done. We've got a baptism, so the kiddos, we want to take part in it. Uh, Let's dig deeper into Jesus' answer. He's answered well, not just according to the scribe, but is his answer any different than those that preceded it? Any different than Hillel or Simon the Just or the religious order of his day? Is his answer unique in any way? And I want to say, yes, it is. But we have to jump to Luke 10 and the account of the great commandment for more data and insight for this to make sense. Let's do that. I'm going to recap. You don't even need to flip, although you can, because I'm going to recap for you. Okay, here's here's the uh, 22nd version (laughs) of the greatest commandment in Luke 10. Uh, Teacher of the law comes to Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And he gives the same answer Jesus does, the two-part answer. Love God with all of who you are. <clears throat> and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, good answer, follow that and you'll live. And the man wanting to justify himself, and this is where things get really interesting, the man wanting to justify himself asks, who's my neighbor? Ah, and here's where Jesus' answer takes on a whole new dimension and depth. He answers the man with a parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we all know that story, so I'm not going to rehash it. But according to Leviticus 19.18, a neighbor was, quote, the son of your own people. Okay? But in and through this parable, Jesus broadens this to include all people. This is a massive paradigm shift. Even a Samaritan Jesus, even someone outside my people group, outside my comfort zone, outside my religion, all of a sudden outsiders are neighbors too, not just your own people. This scandalizes the Jewish system, big time. There's a reality that wholehearted love of the Lord leads directly to seeking justice on behalf of your neighbor. We see that in the Good Samaritan. Advocating for those who've been passed over by society, the government, yes, yea, verily, even the church. Loving your neighbor by seeking their justice. So what Jesus is doing here is bringing them back to care for the widow, the orphan, the alien, that Old Testament call the least of these. God has a special place in his heart for these people. Who's my neighbor? Well, the way Jesus answers it, not just your people, but those who've been passed over, overlooked, ignored, the outliers, the outsiders, the rejects. Who is my neighbor? Uh, Basically everyone, even those who we might despise or avoid. And here's how the parable ends. Okay, verses 36 and 37 in Luke 10. Uh, which, this is Jesus talking. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the irony here is that the Samaritan was the real neighbor here when all the other Jews had passed by the man and failed to live out the greatest commandment. Okay, all right, let's, let's back up a little bit here. Zoom back out to about 30,000 feet if we can. This passage, The Greatest Commandment, I I find it so challenging. This is a difficult passage. I'm tempted to rush to action. And what I mean by that is try harder, okay? Maybe I'll try harder to love God. Maybe I'll try harder to love my neighbor. Now, I'm not saying there isn't work to be done there and effort on our part. Please don't hear that. I'm just saying maybe we shouldn't begin there, perhaps. Perhaps we need to receive God's love more deeply and more fully first, to be gripped by it, to be in awe of it, to be captured by it, to wonder over it, before we rush to action, what does God hope for? A changed heart. <laughs> Ideally, that's what he wants, first things first. So that's the first action pointer question you can put if you're taking notes. There is something for us to observe here, and I've been hammering away at this, and I'm going to hammer just a little bit more if you'll endure if you'll, uh, me here. The depth of our love of God is proportionate to our love of neighbor. That's the intended design, at least. Okay, the degree—it's like the—it's the engine that drives love of neighbor, the love of God. It's the engine. So, the degree to which we are astounded by grace and mercy is the degree to which we will love our neighbor. If you believe you were in bondage to sin, if you believe that you were a slave in Egypt and an enemy of God, bound for death, wouldn't you want others to know the same rescue? wouldn't you? Who is my neighbor? And what will I do for them? My presumption here is that loving your neighbor is actually pretty hard work. It's the practice of growing in grace. I wish it came about naturally. Uh, Sometimes it does. I find it doesn't always. It is hard work. So who are the widow, the orphan, the alien? Who are the least of these in our community? To whom are we bound and beholden to. Now i got to say, and I'll conclude here, this is a question that is ever on my heart as I think of where we will find a permanent church home. I'm always thinking about this. Something, and It's something leadership is praying ardently over. Who will our neighbors be? Who will they be exactly? Who will we be a neighbor to? How will our mission as a church be shaped by our new environment, by our new location, by the new people who surround us? Will we be moved to action and compassion Will we be an advocate for gospel justice in that place? Will we seek to renew the community around us? So these are matters, I believe, for prayer and for fasting, and I bring them to you because I want you to be praying, fasting over these things. Who will our neighbors be? Who will they be? And who will we be a neighbor to? It's not too soon, I believe, to ask and pray deeply over those questions. I think it's time. So as a community, let's be in prayer over this as we actively seek out the new location to which God is calling us, which we do not know yet. (laughs) So it might feel like praying into the ether, but it is anything but that. May we commit ourselves fully to this task and pray for our neighbors to be on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.